Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to In Town Church, and thanks for putting up with some of the uh, little inconvenient details that didn't ha- happen quite as we expected this morning. Um, we are going through, if you're visiting with us, uh, a series on longing, a series on hoping, a series on being without, and what that means uh, to the Christian story. And this morning, we're looking at this text that, that Chris just read, Zechariah 3. And as we begin our study, our look at this passage, would you pray with me one more time? Father, wherever we're coming from this morning, it's most likely that we've heard the contours of the story of Jesus, that he was born of a virgin, that he was born in a stable, that he was born to be king. Even if we're not Christians this morning, we can likely recite the story and assign some significance to it. And so what we need this morning is not just to recite the facts of the story, to re, uh, be reminded of the outline, uh, the details. But Father, we need to encounter the story. We need to encounter, in fact, Jesus himself. Lord, as we look at this very ancient text that predates the coming of Jesus, but expects his coming, that talks about his coming, Lord, would you let us encounter you, maybe for the first time or for the thousandth time, would we meet Jesus, would we see him, and would this ancient text be made relevant and necessary and meaningful in all of our lives this morning? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're celebrating Advent, as many of you know, hopefully all of you know. Uh, we're also in the midst of Christmas time. The Christmas season is upon us. And for me, Christmas is partly Norman Rockwell and partly Ebenezer Scrooge. And I'm sure that you can understand where I'm coming from with that. The day after Thanksgiving, we went with a, a family at, from the church and went out and cut down our Christmas tree. We brought it home. We strung it up, we set it up, we decorated it, we decorated our house, there's lights and there's presents out all over our house. Very Norman Rockwell scene. And yet Katie and I looked at each other in the kitchen the other night and just were aghast that it's almost here. Christmas is right around the corner. It's this week and we haven't done our shopping. We haven't sent out our Christmas cards. Our, our house is in disorder the strings of light that we didn't string up are now in a pile in our dining room. It's very a very Ebenezer Scrooge type of feeling. We have optimism and we have cynicism as we encounter this season. We're on this teeter-totter. It's full of warm feelings and it's a source of great stress. Now the people that Zechariah was writing to had this sort of teeter-totter ideal as well, or idea, or sensation. They were teeter-tottering between great hope and yet despair and despondency. They were looking forward to this beautiful future that God had promised them, and yet lamenting where they had been. They had been in exile, in slavery for hundreds of years. Now they're hopeful again, because King Xerxes has allowed them to go back to Jerusalem with the uh, allowance to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. And yet it's been many decades, and the reconstruction has stalled. And so Zechariah comes to breathe some hope into this situation of despair. 
Verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Not a very good start for hope and encouragement. I have a recurring dream. Maybe I've shared this before, I'm not sure, but it's the end of the semester in high school, my senior year, and I realize that I haven't gone to my English class all semester. And even in my dream, I'm thinking, but I've been to college and I've been to seminary. I've already graduated from those two institutions. How can I not graduate from high school? But I'm panicked because I think that I'm about to be found out and that if I don't graduate high school, then maybe my college degree, maybe my seminary degree doesn't mean anything either. Another one is I show up to preach and I can't find my notes. This one happens about every week. Or I'm late and I'm running to church and it's one of those dream runs where you can't get your feet moving fast enough and I know that all of you are waiting for me and I'm way down uh, near the waterfront and I can't get here. Now, what does this tell me that's going on in my subconscious? What am I thinking about? Do you guys have dreams like these? You probably do. You show up at your office and you realize that you've left your clothes at home and you're in your cubicle and you're trying to figure out how do I get to the store with no one seeing me? How do I go get my clothes? What are these things about? Don't they point to this nagging, this deep-seated insecurity that in some way we're going to be found out for who we really are? That in some way we feel like an imposter, that we feel like a fraud, that we fear being insignificant? Now, maybe in this verse, first verse, this idea of Satan, this personified evil, this cosmic prosecution, it's difficult for you to get your head around. But could you doubt your doubts for a moment and to consider that what lies behind this imagery is very, very true, that inside of you, that there's something that's not fully right, that there's something that's sideways about your soul, about how you feel about yourself, and that this, this is what's coming out in these dreams. It's a cosmic anxiety. And that if we're honest, that we really do understand this accusation that Zechariah is talking about. That evil doesn't exist simply outside of us. That evil doesn't exist simply in other people in the dark corners of our world. But when we're honest, maybe most honest in our dreams, we understand that we ourselves are evil or have moments and thoughts of evil. And owning up to this, as I indicated in the confession, is the first step towards honesty, towards light, towards freedom, towards wholeness. In fact, it's the first step to really meeting God as he is. C.S. Lewis, as I quoted in your bulletin, says, Man approaches God most nearly when he is in one sense least like God. For what can be more unlike than fullness and need? Sovereignty and humility, righteousness and penitence, limitless power and a cry for help. Then verse 3. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Now this isn't a bit of 
matzo ball soup that is kind of spilled on Joshua's clothes. This is a word for excrement. It's a word for vomit elsewhere in the Bible. Now, parents can imagine having vomit or excrement on us or seeing it on our children, but generally we think of adults who have excrement or vomit on them as having some sort of mental disorder or being high on some sort of drug. But this is Joshua. This is the high priest. He was to be known for his inward and outward purity and piety. And yet even he stands before the angel of the Lord and his clothes are an image of defilement, of inappropriateness for the occasion. He comes into court on trial for his life and he has excrement and vomit all over him. Now the Bible is not saying that humans gross out God or that we're disgusting to him and that he can't stand to look at us. But the Bible uses over and over this heightened language to convey that there's something very wrong with us, that there's something that is unsettled within us, that something about us that is inappropriate to this relationship as we stand before God, that there's something that's symbolized in this outward veneer of excrement and vomit that is true of something internal that throws our relationship with God out of whack. In other words, that there is something to our anxieties, to our insecurities. And to make matters worse, what we often try to do is to try to deal with them on our own. It's like Lady Macbeth having this stained moral record and we're saying, get out, damn spot, and it just won't come out. What is this spot, this stain for you? Maybe you've made a huge mistake in your past and you just can't get over it. You keep replaying it in your mind and you can't give yourself grace for that. Maybe it's a hurtful word from a parent or a peer or a teacher and you've internalized it through the years and it's really misshaped you in adulthood. Maybe your life is marked by moral effort. You try to do more, you try to be better, you try to keep everyone happy, and it never feels like enough. So maybe this morning, because of one of these things or a host of others, you call yourself a Christian, and yet if you're really honest, you're dreadfully afraid of God. You're dreadfully afraid to open yourself up to other people. Or maybe you're not really sure that you buy into Christianity at all, and yet you're dreadfully afraid of death, of dying, of meaninglessness, that nothing in the world actually has any cosmic importance and that nothing you ever do will ultimately matter. Philip Roth, who is talked about as one of the great American novelists, wrote the book The Human Stain about a man with a, a great secret. And Fania, one of the characters, says, we leave a stain, we leave a trail, we leave our imprint. Impurity, cruelty, abuse, error, excrement. There's no other way to be here. Nothing to do with disobedience, nothing to do with grace or salvation or redemption. It's in everyone, indwelling, inherent, defining. The stain that is there before its mark. Without the sign, it is there. 
the stain so intrinsic it doesn't require a mark, the stain that precedes disobedience, that encompasses disobedience and perplexes all explanation and understanding. It's why all the cleansing is a joke, a barbaric joke at that. The fantasy of purity is appalling. It's insane. What is the quest to purify, if not more impurity? All she was saying about the stain was that it's inescapable. But is it? Is it truly inescapable? Is this moral stain that even Philip Roth is acknowledging in our human condition, is it truly inescapable? We're certainly all marked by it. G.K. Chesterton was uh, said about original sin that it's the one Christian doctrine that can be proven empirically. We all know it's there. We see it in each other. We see it in ourselves. But is it inescapable? How does God respond to this stain, this human stain, this spot? Verse 2, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan, The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? What is he doing? He's overruling the prosecution. He's saying, Satan, you're out of order. He acknowledges that the high priest even is blackened and smoldering, that he's stained. But what's the difference? What turns the tide? He says, they're mine. He says, I'm pulling them out of the fire. Yes, I see everything about them. I see their sin, but they're mine. You're out of order. Friends, if we recognize this, if we personalize this, this is absolutely astounding. To think that this is how God deals with your guilt in this cosmic persecution. That he says, yes, look at them. They're dark and they're smoldering. And there's parts of their lives that don't add up, that don't look like me at all, and yet they're mine. And I'm snatching them from the fire. It's astounding that this is how God would choose to align himself with us. He acknowledges the filth, which is a stand-in for sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't ignore it. But he doesn't allow that this is the last word or the most important word about who we are. And isn't this what we're looking for in our most honest moments? Don't we really want someone to not pretend that our sin doesn't matter? To not pretend not to notice our shortcomings and our failure? To put up with us, not just by focusing on our positive aspects, because that really doesn't deal with the problem, and that's not really at its core, an honest relationship. It leaves us just as anxious, just as afraid, because what if they can't focus any longer on the positive? What if some of our negatives begin to creep into the relationship? What if they're not quite as committed any longer to try to put the best spin on our actions? What if I share what I'm really thinking and they reject me? What we long for What I long for is someone to say, I see you for who you really are. I see all of you, and I love you. I don't reject you, and I never will. In this courtroom scene, God's love is not pretense. It's honest and devoted. 
It's seeing and protective. But there's more. Verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. You see, at the center of the Bible, the gospel story, the gospel narrative is not just that all of your sin has been wiped away. That's taking off the filthy clothes. And that's something to sing and jump up and down and dance and rejoice about that your sin record can be wiped clean. That's astonishing, but it goes far beyond that because God does away with your filthy, filthy clothes, A, but he also clothes you in the fine garments of righteousness. You see, it's so much more than just wiping your slate clean so that you can have a fresh start. It's giving you everything that you could possibly need to stand before God in right relationship with him. It's not only that because of what Jesus does on your behalf that God sees you as having done nothing wrong, taking off the filthy clothes, but as if you had done everything right, putting on the fine garments. Who could unwrap a better gift at Christmas time than that? Now, how is this possible? How could this sort of relationship be possible? How could we go through this cosmic prosecution and come out on the other side not only being cleansed but being made new, being made righteous? Verse 8, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men of symbolic things to come, I am going to bring my servant, the branch. The branch, the servant the coming Messiah. It's this mysterious figure who will be finally the final high priest, the ultimate high priest, which the high priest Joshua only pointed to, only hinted at. The high priest who didn't wear filthy clothes. The high priest who could stand in the cosmic prosecution and survive. He comes not wearing filthy clothes, but regal clothes. The one who didn't need his sins atoned for, the one who could not only serve as mediator, but be the mediator. You see, the human high priest can serve as the mediator, but he can't be the mediator. This is the one who will come, this branch, this Messiah, this Lord, this Jesus will be the one who comes as the final judge of all the earth, and yet comes to make a case for you. Comes not to accuse and undermine you, but comes to defend you. And what does he say? What does the branch say? See these people? They really are filthy. Let's not play games about this. Let's not sweep it under the rug. Let's actually be honest. They really are guilty. They have nothing in and of themselves that would demand that you acquit them. But is it possible? Is it possible that their sentence be transferred to me? Is it possible that I, the branch, could stand in for them? And maybe whatever sentence you were going to give to them, you could give to me instead. Could their guilt be transferred to me 
and my righteous standing be transferred to them. It's the boldest courtroom strategy ever. This is 12 angry men on steroids. He's not asking for mercy. He's not asking for mercy to look over, overlook their sin. He's asking for justice. He's asking that the price actually be paid fully and finally. Not simply mercy, but justice. He's asking that their sin be done away with. The Kumbh Mela is a 55-day Hindu festival in which people bathe for forgiveness of their sins at the meeting point of three rivers, the Ganges, the Yamuna, and the mythical Sarasvati. And this occurs every 12 years, and more than 40 million people gathered in 2001 and 100 million people in 2013. This is like a third of the U.S. population traveling to bathe in the Mississippi River in a town the tenth the size of St. Louis. Now, they're washing for cleansing and forgiveness in the Ganges River, but it's one of the top five most polluted rivers in the world. And they're symbolically cleansing themselves with the risk of very real disease. People that bathe in the Ganges River get dysentery, cholera, hepatitis, and a number of other things. And I don't say this to demean Hindus that are seeking this cleansing, but it's as a way of contrast that cleansing, they're seeking cleansing in one of the filthiest places on earth. What Jesus says is come to be cleansed in his blood, that he is clean and that his cleanness actually rubs off, that everything that he is actually can be yours if you will be cleansed in him, if you will rest in him. And more than that, we don't have to make a pilgrimage to him. He actually makes a pilgrimage to us. But that's what we celebrate in Advent, that God the one who has every right for cosmic prosecution of you and me instead makes a pilgrimage in and of himself to defend you, to give you cleansing. He's made the pilgrimage to us. That's the story of Advent. That's the hope of the gospel. And my hope is that we would all take hold of that promise, that offer, that invitation during the season of Advent. Let's pray. Lord, we, if we're honest, are longing for many things. But if we're honest, it's not a longing oftentimes for righteousness. It's a longing for many other things, many other things that can be distractions. We're longing for the things of this world to give us ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction. And Lord, as we continue to celebrate this season of Advent, as we continue to worship this morning, would you Enable our hearts to turn away from those things. Enable our hearts to put them in the right context and to worship you through them, to worship you alone and to find our hope, our significance, our meaning in you alone. Lord, we pray as we confess our faith and come to the table that you would begin to do that work in our hearts individually and as a community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.